What's up everybody? This is Lisa Fields, founder and president of the Jew Through Project, and this is six highlights from the Jew Through Project for 2022. Number six, the unspoken documentary in partnership with DLC Media. Number five, the Juneteenth documentary in partnership with Our Daily Bread. Number four, our Right Now Media series through eyes of color. Number three, our Courageous Conversations curriculum. Number two, our Courageous Conversations Conference 2022. And number one, Problematic Passages featuring Dr. Esau McCauley and Dr. Joe Vitale. We've had an incredible year. I mean, God has done some amazing things that have caused growth and we have reached millions across the globe with your help. Help us continue the mission and the vision of the Jew3 Project at jew3project.org. We need your help to help people reimagine faith through apologetics. Every gift helps equip and help us to expand in 2023. Grace and peace. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. All right, thanks for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And I'm here to talk today with uh, soon-to-be Dr. Sherelle Duxworth. Uh, Sherelle actually uh, co-wrote with Yana on our curriculum through Eyes of Color. I'm so proud of her. It is awesome always to see a Black woman um, getting her PhD in systematic theology. Uh, she is almost uh, rounding out that uh, program to to be uh, a doctor, have her doctor, and uh, I'll be soon able to call her Dr. Sherelle Dutchworth. So I'm so excited about that. Sherelle, uh, welcome and uh, tell our audience just a little bit about who you are. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super grateful to be here. So my name is Sherelle Duxworth. I um, am originally from Clarksdale, Mississippi, and I went to an HBCU right out of high school. Actually, I went to a two-year college first, um, having some degrees in sociology, became a believer at the age of 23 while getting my master's degree in sociology, which was an interesting transition because I was studying feminism and um, race and social class transition to become a sociology instructor. Um, I did that for about, I think, four years and then felt God calling me to um, seminary. And so I went to a school in Tennessee, got my Master of Arts in Theology, and then we moved to Wake Forest to do PhD work at Southeastern. Um, as Lisa stated, I'm studying systematic theology and I'm taking comps in February. So hopefully finishing out this year. And I currently am a professor at Anderson University where I teach worldview, um, hermeneutics and theology. And I'll be married for 10 years in August. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I first heard about you through your husband. I was in the airport. Uh -huh. I believe it was in Rochester, New York. And uh -huh. he was like, me and, me and my wife loved you three. Uh -huh. uh, and so I was like, oh, okay, what do you and your wife do? And he, he told me that y'all were a power couple in seminary. Uh, he didn't say power couple, but right. I attached that name to it <laughs> because, I mean, 
Y'all both were in seminary doing yeah. the work and he told me you were a professor and I was like, oh, I would love to get connected to, to your wife and stay connected to you and then transition to uh, you actually, uh, I think you came to Courageous in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. when uh, we were uh, brainstorming about the Courageous Conversations curriculum, I asked Gianna, I was like, you think Sherelle would be interested in writing and uh, that's how you got uh, plugged in for this work. Uh, yeah. You wrote uh, two chapters um, in the book, uh, in the curriculum. One was on, can we trust the Bible? And the other one was on justice. Uh, I feel like there's some correlation and overlap between those two topics. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, I wanna focus on why we should trust the Bible. And I think this is really important for us as Black women, particularly, um, there's a lot in the text for women um, that would make them question whether they should trust the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so um, just talk a little bit about the challenges for trusting the Bible, particularly for women. And then you could go more broadly for anybody, especially black people in general. Yeah. So what's funny is my husband and I actually got wind of you because of questions like this. Like we started out with a strong emphasis on apologetics and the questions that we brought to the text, we just didn't find in any, I think Chris Brooks was like the only person that was, uh, you know, writing it in ways that could respond to our questions. And Mm -hmm. so these are questions that I've thought through really for a while. And I think having a race focus in sociology, it was almost like, of course, that would be like some of my questions, like why is the Bible saying these things about slavery? That reads a little weird. Like, I don't know what to do with with these passages. Um, And so I think for women in general, it becomes complicated. One, because the text seems to present us with these really oppressive and suppressive passages. Mm -hmm. But then also church history has really the endorsement of like celebrating the oppression of women or at least like condoning the oppression and suppression of women. So Mm -hmm. to me, it makes sense that women in general would have these questions. Like, I don't really know what to do with the passage um, in Mm -hmm. Hagar, like with Hagar. Like, I don't really know what to do with what's happening to to Leah. And I think it's been more difficult because of the way people have handled those passages. Mm -hmm. Like Hagar has been relatively just overlooked it wasn't until I read Sisters in the Wilderness where I saw someone was like, oh, wait, someone is actually like speaking t- to her experience. And so as a woman, it's been challenging. It hasn't mm-hmm. been like, I think my trust in God made me believe that there is a way that I'm supposed to get this, that I'm just mm-hmm. not getting right now. And everything that they're telling me about this passage has to be false. Mm-hmm. Um But I think with the racial passages just doubly complicates like how black women in particular interact with the text. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to have a lived experience of oppression and kind of being invisible, but then going to the passage and seeing women of color who seem to be treated the same way. Mm -hmm. And then also seeing your clergy handling the text as if that invisibility is okay. And so it it has been like one of the things that I've tried to work through, not only in my own life, but also with people I disciple, 
particularly women of color? How do you engage passages that seem to be both racist and sexist? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's that's vitally important for people to know and understand as they're trying to think through, can we trust the Bible? Mm-hmm. How would you respond to someone who's navigating these questions? Yeah, I think what helps what helped me personally was really investigating the credibility of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, I was trained in sociology, so it was really imperative for me to see the Bible as a, as a valid source, mm-hmm. because in my own experience, in my own study, it's very clear that women, and particularly women of color, women of color have experienced significant amounts of oppression and often at the hand of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to grasp, can I trust this material? And I think the way, the reason why I trust it is because um, I think the Bible is inspired by God. I think it's consistent um, in its like revelation of redemption. Um, and I also think Christ is the revelation. And so Christ reveals what's, what is in the text through his lived experience. Mm-hmm. And the way that I interpret the text has to be in sync with the way he lived out the text. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not necessarily reading Old Testament passages divorced from the way that Christ would live out that Old Testament passage. Mm-hmm. So if I'm reading something on a problematic passage, I'm trying to, to interpret that in light of how Christ engaged the Old Testament, how he engaged those Old Testament passages. And what is the covenant that he's introducing? What does it say to to that passage and how I would interpret it? Mm -hmm. And through doing that, I found that I could trust the Bible. It was people's interpretation and practice that I needed to deconstruct. So it wasn't like I needed to throw away um, these passages. I needed a better hermeneutic to interpret them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that I use is Esau Macaulay's like perspective when interpreting some of the Old Testament passages. Mm-hmm. And so I think I would just say learning that interpretation and the Bible are not the same thing. And so the way a person interprets is not infallible. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it is fallible. It's not perfect. And so I, I make a separation between people's interpretation and what the text is actually saying. And then I also try to interpret the passages in light of how Christ would kind of interact with that passage and live that passage out. And I also have leveraged voices to help me do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do believe the Bible is trustworthy because it's proved itself to be to be trustworthy. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. And I love how you make that distinction that people take the interpretation as infallible Mm -hmm. and not the Bible itself. And so then they construct a narrative that they can't trust the Bible because somebody misinterpreted it. So you think about um, the Crusades or you think about slavery and you think Mm -hmm. about, and people have a, they look at the Bible and they say, this is a tool that has been misused. Mm -hmm. And why would I trust something that can be misused um, in this way? But when you really think about it, anything can be misused. Mm-hmm. I often like to think about the illustration of a hammer. A hammer is designated to uh, be a tool for building, uh, for you to hang pictures and other things and do a lot around, you know, construction. However, on my 
one of my favorite shows is Criminal Minds. And on Criminal Minds, right. I've seen somebody use a hammer uh, to to kill someone. Mm-hmm. And so does that make a hammer uh, problematic? No, right. it's based on the hands and the intention of the person mm-hmm. that holds yeah. it. Yeah. And so we should not throw the Bible away just because somebody misused it. Uh, because anything can be misused. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, we would have to throw away all the things we use. Cause I mean, right. like think about drugs, drugs are helpful, but if you mm-hmm. abuse drugs and I'm talking about like, that's why we're in the opioid crisis because mm-hmm. there are people who abuse opioids, but that doesn't mean we have to get rid of opioids. Cause there are some people that need them uh, to get through a very difficult season. And right. so I think we should think about it holistically. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I try to do now as a like a a theology professor is like really stress um, the flaws and the misuse of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Like some of my students will tell you, I don't think uh, Ms. D liked Luther that much. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I don't have any problem with with Martin Luther. But I'm very like clear to communicate his flaws in the way that he wrote things that were unchristian and Mm -hmm. specifically his writings about the Jews. And so what I found is that if I'm honest about people's misuse, it makes me a more credible witness to the Bible's trustworthiness. Mm Because I don't have any stake in like pretending that Christians have not, not misused the Bible. Like I don't have the, the cultural, um, like I'm not in the the club of needing to protect Christianity from like what Christians have done to it. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we're honest about, if we're honest about the way that people have misused it and aren't afraid that if we admit that, then that somehow delegitimizes the Bible. I think that it makes not only the Bible more trustworthy, but we become more trustworthy Christians. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if a student asks me like, wait, did they use slavery? The Bible for slavery? They sure did. (laughs) And like, this is why that was wrong. Instead of saying, well, you know, they were just people of their time and, and they were just doing, no, like that was a misuse. And Mm -hmm. and I can admit that was a misuse. And I think that's been a service to, to people to hear that um, people have messed up and there's a better way to interpret. Let's try to figure out the better way to do that. Mm -hmm. No, that's helpful. Um, just tell our audience for those who have the curriculum or thinking about getting it courageous conversations, kind of how you walk people through navigating that question in the book. Yeah. So this book was, um, really a personal joy because one of the things I tried to do specifically with my chapters was leverage only black voices. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I did that was because specifically when it comes to like the Bible's trustworthiness and the Bible's infallibility, I encountered those questions way before I entered into a majority white context. Mm-hmm. So when I first started teaching sociology, whenever my students found out that I was Christian, the number one question was, why are you a Christian if they use the Bible for slavery? Mm-hmm. Like that was always the question. And so um, for me, no one ever answered that question for me, one. And then two, they could never reference a Black person who believed that the Bible was trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't that there weren't any. I just 
they just were never leveraged for me. And so when I wrote that chapter, I wanted to look at how black people have thought about the Bible's trustworthiness, because Mm -hmm. just the way that we are as black people, we're very communal. And so if our people are saying something is true, we're more than likely to be like, okay, well, let me consider that. If she's saying it's true, then maybe it's true, right? Mm -hmm. And so as I worked through the chapter, I really started to dig in African-American church history Mm -hmm. um, and look at like some very prominent theologians and how clear they were about the Bible's trustworthiness Mm -hmm. and the Bible's um, inspiration. And so first I wanted to do that. Like, let me see what have Black people thought about the Bible in general. And overwhelmingly, most of the Black people I found were like, the Bible is inspired. It is the word of God. It is true. You can trust it. Like they put everything in trusting the Bible to be true. And for a lot of them connecting it to the justice chapter, it had to be true in order for their prophetic vision to be true. Like the thing that they wanted in society, they they found in the Bible. And so um, it was foundational for them. And even for those contemporary thinkers who don't necessarily believe that the entirety of the Bible is infallible, still found value in it. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was it was crucial for me to show like here are these two unique perspectives among black thinkers. Um, So we come from a legacy of black Christians who Mm -hmm. trust the Bible and even those who don't necessarily trust every aspect of it, believe that some aspect of it is trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So more than not, black people are trusting the Bible. And so I wanted to demonstrate that. And then I wanted to also demonstrate um, how the Bible speaks on its own about its trustworthiness, Mm -hmm. uh, but also connecting the Bible's trustworthiness to the person of Christ. Because I think I um, I mentioned in the chapter that Jesus is the revelation of God. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that, that God is revealing to us in the text is personified in the person. Mm -hmm. And so we trust it because the person um, is expressing what's written. Mm -hmm. And if something is written and it seems like it's contradicting the person, then the contradiction is in the interpretation and not in the person um, and not in the, in the book. And so I really wanted to work through kind of hammering that out, like how to believe that the Bible um, is trustworthy based on the fact that 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 the son is the revelation of God. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's super, super helpful. Um, Can we can we talk about so there's people a lot of people have no issue saying the Bible is inspired. Um, Infallible inerrant becomes a problem for many. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the trouble with inerrancy and why people struggle with it? And then how you would respond to the claim of the Bible's inerrancy? Yeah. So I think the, the, in, in my studies, what I, I recognize is that when people have problems with, um, the Bible being without error, I think it, it, is because of um, the human authorship, mm-hmm. like struggling with the, one, struggling with the fallibility of the human writers. And then two, trying to navigate whether or not the human writers at any point are just writing based on their own cognition, excuse me, and 
versus writing something that is actually inspired. And then some people have a different understanding of inspiration. Like inspiration means that God is writing through them or inspiration means that, well, God just approves what's being written, but these are actually their words. Um, and the Bible is, is without error. And then you have like textual variants that present problems where it seems like there are different um, errors with the language that causes people to not believe that the Bible um, is without error. Uh, and I think for me, one of the things I wanted to communicate and one of the things I try to communicate is if God is, has said that this is his revelation, then that alone means that there cannot be error because God is, I don't want to say cosign because that sounds a little, um, a little flippant. Mm -hmm. If it's God's word and if Christ is reiterating these words and, and they've kind of like put their stamp of approval on the entirety of it, then it has to be inerrant. Like it has to, it can't function. It can't function as the revelation of God and contain error. Mm. Like God cannot be revealed in a erroneous way. Like he, he, he just can't. And so I think for me, tying revelation to the persons, like a lot of people don't necessarily think about revelation. But I mean, I guess they, I don't know that to be true. So I won't say that, but there is a connection between the doctrine of God and the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so I think what may be most helpful in kind of landing um, on the Bible's inerrancy, inspiration, and infallibility is really rooting your doctrine of scripture in the doctrine of God. Because if if he is what is revealed, if, if he is the one who, this sounds very bark, if he is the one who is doing the revealing and then there is the revealer, then the question is, is God revealing error? Like, is he revealing um, contradictions or things that aren't true. Um, and I think the answer to that question should help us to kind of land on the Bible's inerrancy. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's helpful. I, I've heard most people say, you know, they believe the Bible is inerrant in his, in its original, um, mm -hmm. we don't yeah. have an autograph copy, but they yeah. believe the autograph is in without error, error and the errors that we yeah. do see in the manuscripts are just scribal minor, minor scribe errors as they were translating. Mm -hmm. I mean, as they were, were writing it out, uh, making copies. Um, and so I think that's a helpful way to look at it. Mm -hmm. The challenge with saying that is we don't have an autograph. So it's, yeah. it's kind of like, we don't have original copy. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's really a faith position mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day to, yeah. to make that claim because we don't have the right. the originals. Um, so that and I would say too, to, I would say too, Lisa. I think I, I think connecting the inerrancy question again, like to the doctrine of God. Mm -hmm. I think the question is like, if God is, we talk about like God being sovereign, right? Mm -hmm. And a part of His sovereignty is His person, you know, Him preserving. And so, one question that that I would ask is, if God is so intentional with preserving the function of the world, like making sure the sun rises and, and sets, making sure like the water flows in the streams, like how much more would he be 
uh, intentional with preserving his revelation in written form. Um, and so I think just thinking about like the who God is as a person, what all that means, like him being holy, sovereign, him preserving, um, him governing creation and how that has some implication on the biblical text, but also um, how I think where the faith really is helpful is where there is these this these variants or these um, these things. What does it impact the general story of redemption? Mm-hmm. Like, can we still hold the the essentials of the Christian faith? And if the answer is yes, then maybe it is faith that allows us to kind of be like, well, I don't understand why why this manuscript is different, mm-hmm. but it doesn't it doesn't taint my understanding of human depravity or the gospel. So, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to like trust God um, in my faith journey. Yeah. And when there's that variation, when it comes to like issues that aren't essential to the gospel, this is where like charitable interpretation and the allowing of people to um, figure out their expressions of faith freely is crucial mm-hmm. because I think, honestly, there are those things that people make into like primary essential faith things that really jeopardize our ability to trust God, God's inerrancy on the essentials. No, that's good. And I I love that you said that. And I also think it's important when we think about the variants to think about, like like you said, they're very small things. Uh, and we can look at that and say, man, that actually helps us see the reliability of the Bible mm-hmm. because these people, as many years as it's been translated, the only variants we see are very minor details that don't impact mm-hmm. the larger story. And mm-hmm. actually, if we flip it and and look at it in that way, it may help us trust the Bible even more, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Are you tracking with yeah. me? Yeah. Um, yep. To know that God... It flowed through human hands, but divinely inspired. I was reading a book on the Pentateuch and they said, uh, think about the Bible. Like we think about the hypostatic union, a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. I don't know if I'm all the way tracking with that, but I get the sentiment (laughs) that something can actually have human prints Mm -hmm. on it. And still be divine, yep. because yeah, uh, we see that in Jesus, right? Right. Um, yep. The challenge with that was we, we would have variants, but but if you think about the autograph, <laughs> if the autograph in itself is no error, then it it does have a kind of human component, but spirit, divine component, like mm-hmm. the hypostatic union. Um, yeah. I don't want anybody to listen to this and think I'm being heretical. I'm just making the point that the book was making that I thought was an interesting yeah. point. And I don't even think they were yeah. saying it, but they were just making a correlation. Yeah. And so, yeah. no, I, I think that's good. Yeah. So I, I, um, I think that could be helpful in framing it. In your other chapter, you talk about justice and how the Bible is um, really the pillar of justice. When we think about what justice is, we can't get that apart from understanding who God is and what his justice is um, and how 
we see his justice in light of his holiness mm-hmm. um, and his love. Talk about a little bit of the integration of those chapters and how you handled the justice component as well. Yeah. You, what's funny is, um, so I, I mentioned before, I have a background in sociology. Mm-hmm. And so coming into the Christian faith, I had already studied Marx. I had some familiarity on like justice conversations in like a secular world. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically enough, we didn't talk about Marx nearly as much as like Christians talk about him today, which I think is so fascinating. So coming into like the Christian faith and seeing that people really had a hard time with thinking about like what was justice was just really, it was really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And so when, when you asked me to write this chapter, I wanted to be balanced because I think there is a tendency to emphasize one in hopes of making a point about one, but often that seems to be done in exclusion of the other. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is like, there are some who would emphasize like biblical justice, like justice along the lines of like soteriological liberation. Mm -hmm. Like when it comes to my personal salvation, justice is about X, Y, Z. And then there are others who would look more at like a social justice where they would say, you know, justice is the enactment of righteousness in the public space. One, what I find in the biblical text is not a divorcing of either, but really um, a presentation of both. Mm -hmm. And the social um, forms of liberation come out of a soteriological liberation. Mm -hmm. Um, but not like this liberation that looks like what I believe is like a caricature of liberation that a lot of anti-justice people kind of use to dis- to discredit like, you know, books or people who talk about social justice. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to demonstrate that God is concerned with righteousness in general. Mm-hmm. And if the redemptive story is about righteousness, it doesn't cut off once we go into the public space. Mm-hmm. Um, So I'm actually writing my dissertation on social sin. And one of the things that's so fascinating about how people think about sin is that it's personal, but they don't seem to believe that it moves beyond the person. Mm. And it's so fascinating because God created us as one humanity and we exist with people. So justice has to go from us outward. Mm -hmm. And so in the Bible, you see this. Yes, like this call to, to justice between man and God or a woman and God. But you also see this, now go do this. Mm-hmm. Do what is fair, what is right, what is just. And so I wanted to demonstrate that. I knew that I would have no problem finding Black voices to speak on justice. Not because like I thought, you know, Black Christians were talk more about justice than, you know, Bible inspiration. That wasn't it at all. But I grew up in the, in the Mississippi Delta where... Um, it's like the center of a lot of, was the center of a lot of black activism. So I grew up knowing about black people pursuing justice. Um, a part of me studying sociology was because I had a desire, you know, to kind of study that more. So I knew that I would find like a wealth of information on black Christians who have seemingly done a really good job with talking about both Mm -hmm. and not, disregarding one for the other. As a matter of fact, there have been so many Christians who have 
talked about personal justice as it relates to God and humanity, um, but also talked about justice in the public uh, square as being rooted in the prior justice. And so that just really fascinated me to see kind of this duality mm -hmm. and not the need to separate the two. Um, I actually think it's weird and very like unbiblical to separate the two mm -hmm. because God created us um, in community, like to be a certain way to people. Like the way that we know we're sinners is, is often by our interaction with others. Like, and we know like we are sinning because people are being impacted by the sin. Mm -hmm. um, even if you look at Adam and Eve, like they are doing something together that is sinful mm -hmm. and their punishment is together. And the judgment happens like to them both. Um, yeah, so I wanted to demonstrate that the Bible has this twofold sense of justice and that the social is rooted in this gospel liberation and that Christians are supposed to do justice um, and not feel like doing justice is a secular or Marxist trait, mm -hmm. you know? No, that's helpful. And I also think it's important that we think about justice in tandem with the hope to come. Hmm. Um, the reason I think that's important is because if you do justice work and you don't have a hope to come, I feel like sometimes it's a bit anemic. And what hmm. do I mean by that? When I say that uh, I'm going to do justice and love mercy and, and do what is just and fight for justice in this life, it would be very discouraging if there wasn't a hope to come and to know mm -hmm. that God is the ultimate judge and he's going to, he's going to make things right. Case mm -hmm. in point, I think about our forefathers and foremothers who were raped, lynched, all the things treated very harshly. And the people that did that to them left without judgment. Mm -hmm. If I just have a hope in me doing the work of justice, then how hopeless is that reality for those who experienced that harsh treatment and never got justice? Mm -hmm. So we have to have not just a hope, we have to not just do justice, but we have to also point people to the eternal hope and know there's mm -hmm. a God who will right every wrong, who will wipe every tear from our eyes. And he will fix what was what went awry and people will mm -hmm. be judged for the things that they did to people that they didn't get judgment here on earth. Mm -hmm. It just seems yeah. to be hopeless if you strip the hope to come away from the justice work now. And that means yeah. it helps me fight for justice now. So I'm going to do all I can. So I'm not going to just because people hear that and they think, well, that's what our slave masters did. They just told us to hope for the by and by. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying do the work of justice now, but know that no matter how much justice work you do, it's incomplete because mm -hmm. there is an ultimate judge that's going to enact true justice. We only do a fragment of it and we do the work. So I'm not telling you don't pursue justice and don't do the work. Right. Do the work, but also live in light of the reality that there's justice to come. Yeah. I think it was one of like the Niebuhr brothers that refers to it as like 
I think it's the possible impossible mm. or impossible possible. Mm-hmm. But it's like this this tension that we rest in, that we pursue what is impossible, believing that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Like we know that this will not be consummated in the here and now. Mm-hmm. But we pursue it, hoping that it will be, yes. but having in the back of our mind that it may not be, mm-hmm. right? And and I think it's like the inability to rest in tension that a lot of Christians struggle with. Mm-hmm. Like I had a student one time was like, I think he asked me something about revelation. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and I wanted to communicate to him, like, be okay with being in tension. Like, you don't have to to know everything, figure it all out, just rest in attention. And I don't think we are comfortable in that. Um, and it can be frustrating being in that tension of like wanting to see it come to life now. But one of the things that's most encouraging about our forefathers and mothers is how they were so faithful to the gospel in their real tangible horror. And yet they still had hope mm-hmm. like Reading a, a Negro spiritual is probably one of the most encouraging things that can happen to a person's faith because they see a person who is not just like giving you some like unexperienced hope, but they're really like, no, like this is my situation and it's, it's horrific, but there is something greater that's coming. And while I pursue this thing, I know that even if I don't see it, there's something better. And, you know, I think about when Jesus is on the cross And when he's being crucified, he says, um, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And MLK talks about how that's such a great picture of love and justice, Mm -hmm. because prior to Christ's death, he is proclaiming what is unrighteous. He is like proclaiming like woes. He's speaking out against like oppression. He's talking through like the mistreatment of people based on ethnicity and gender. He's talking about classism. Like he addresses a lot of things. He's doing all this on his way to justice. Mm -hmm. And like he's doing it in this loving way. And even when he gets on the cross, he's experiencing something horrific. Mm -hmm. And his response to the father is to forgive them. It's not like, I think MLK is like, he doesn't, he doesn't ask God to like strike them down, but he says, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm -hmm. And so it's just such a great example for us to not think that love means being passive Mm -hmm. or to allow people to do wrong and you never say anything, Mm -hmm. but it's like on your way to the great hope, call it out, proclaim it, speak about unrighteousness, but don't allow it to get you off track to this this hope that we're kind of journeying to. Um, don't allow the the role to make you think the experience on the way is is not important. It has a place, and God really, I think, like calls us to speak and to proclaim like when something is not not right, when something is is unjust. But doing that on our way to to that great hope. No, I think that's that's powerful. Um, one other question I want to ask you, because there's this idea that sometimes we may give the Bible too much credence. Like God is bigger than the Bible. Uh, we don't have to. God can speak outside of it, which we know that's that's true. But there's this tension uh, of idolizing the Bible. 
Have you heard that critique before? And yeah. Christians mm-hmm. idolize the Bible. Yeah. Um, and we can know God beyond it. And so we don't have to fit into this space of trying to fit our lives in line with the Bible because the Bible is problematic and it has been misused. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to that claim? Yeah. So the way I understand the Bible, one, I w- would ask them to evaluate their perception of like knowledge. How do you know something? Like, how do you actually come to, to knowledge? But also like, how do you see revelation? Because I think that's the thing. Sometimes there is a distinction being made between the Bible and revelation, mm-hmm. right? Like you have like natural revelation, stuff like that. Um, my encouragement to people is that God has revealed himself through the sun um, and he's revealed himself through his word. And, and to me, it seems uh, it seems like a better place to hear about God in the very place that he is revealing himself. Um, and we know that for sure. Like, I, I do believe that God can speak to you personally, like speak to your personal experience. I think that's the way that God is like sanctifying each individual person. Um, but as far as like the Bible having too much uh too much credence. I just don't think that's true. It has the appropriate amount because it is the word of God. It's the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. And so again, just because people have misused it or people have, have people have abused it, it doesn't mean that the revelation is now invalid. Again, the question is more so about like interpretation and, and you know, people's hermeneutic and how they are dealing with the text. But it's the way that God is des- like desired to reveal himself. And so the, the place where I want to go to know God is there. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the text because the text is incarnational and living. So it's God is always speaking in it. It's like the, the one of the direct ways that God is speaking to his people. Um, it is probably the thing that is, again, most trustworthy because there are so many things that you know, is involved in like human cognition and, and our perception. Um, I mean, our cultures impact how we think, what we think, our perception. Even I was just teaching my class about worldview. Even our worldview sometimes is really just our culture that we've kind of seen as being our Christian worldview, but they're not the same thing. So there are so many external factors that are impacting our perception that the Bible is the truest place to know how God is revealing himself because it is the place where God is showing himself without our kind of impact. Like, of course, like he spoke through human authors, but it's inspired. So he's preserved his revelation the way that he intends to be revealed. Um, And on the other hand, I would say that if you are hearing something or thinking something or believing something that maybe comes from something external, then the way to determine if that information or resource is valid or good is by really comparing it or paralleling it to the word. Does it cause you to kind of go in a different direction than scripture would have you to go? Like, is it presenting a different truth? Does it cause you to have to rewrite the redemption story. And if it does, then it's something with that resource um, is it, problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the way you view the scripture, it is God revealing himself. 
It's the way that he decided to reveal himself. And the son attests to that revelation. Mm -hmm. And so these are two persons who are telling us, here is how you know me. And so that's the best way for us to know. Yeah, I love that, uh, that you said that because we can measure our experiences. We have so many experiences or mm -hmm. supernatural encounters and not all of them are from the spirit. They're mm -hmm. not truly from the spirit. Paul even yeah. says, if if I myself were an angel come with something different, let him be accursed. And so right. what does that teach us? That there are gonna be some things that may be supernatural or natural information mm -hmm. that we receive that we have to test by the revelation of the word. Yep. And if we have no standard to test by, we could go into all types of errors and it could feel peaceful for a season, but it could be very destructive. And so mm -hmm. I think you hit the nail on the head with that, that we have to have a measuring rod to mm -hmm. measure the experiences. Yes, God speaks to us outside of his word. Yes, we could have experiences and encounters. People have come to Christ in supernatural ways right. before they even touch the Bible. So we're not mm -hmm. saying that salvation is limited to you reading the Bible and coming to faith. Right. But once you are in the faith, the Bible helps you filter your experiences and the information you think you're getting. Because there are sometimes, even as a Christian, I think I heard God and I've been off. Mm -hmm. And there has to be something in which we could test it by to see, does this line up? Does this, is this consistent with the character of God revealed in his word? Right. You know, what's funny is I actually got saved outside of a club. So like when I was, went to college girl, I was super legalistic, wasn't, wasn't raised in church. And so I thought being a Christian was like wearing a blue jean skirt and then like, you know, just not doing certain things. And so at one point I was like, you know what, I'm gonna do this Christian thing. And I'm, I'm not going to go in the club. I'll just sit outside in the car. And I actually was saved sitting in my car. And like, there wasn't a person who was presenting me the gospel. Like, I believe the spirit in that moment spoke to my mind and like explained the gospel to me. So it wasn't like a book present when, when I came to know the Lord. Um, but it has been that book that has helped me to understand what it means to be a Christian, like, what is the gospel? Like who 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 is this like triune God and and what does it mean to 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 go to heaven? Like I the Bible is the way that I've made sense of that. And I've never read the Bible and on its own, and I've never had to rethink that essential story. Now there have been ex external sources that I've encountered that have made me go back to the text and be like, wait. What? <laughs> like when I'm reading about like the way that they misuse the Bible for slavery, like the audacity to say that black people came from another person and they weren't human. Like when I heard that, I went to the text and I was like, wait, how is that possible if Christ is a second Adam? Mm -hmm. He he's only like from he's only like a, a better version of this one. So if we're from a different person, then there's a whole nother gospel. Mm -hmm. And what what blows my mind about certain issues is how damaging some things are to the Bible. Like not even these external sources can be damaging, not to the Bible's trustworthiness, but they are undoing 
that seamless story that people have inherited over generations. And so for me, there have been a number of times where an external source has said something to me, particularly about my blackness or my femaleness. And it's made me go to the text and say, wait, they said this, like, I need to figure out if that's actually true. And it's been the Bible that has liberated me from, from that interpretation um, and kept the gospel story seamless. Mm-hmm. No, that's so, so powerful. And that makes me think when you say you got saved outside of a club, when I was in my zealous uh, undergrad days in college, uh, I would go sharing the gospel at the club, in the club parking lot <laughs> with my friends. Uh, oh, that's awesome. And so sometimes I wonder, was that overzealousness helpful? Did it help anybody? Uh, were we just out there with zeal and not right. wisdom? But to hear your yeah. testimony, how you got saved in the club parking lot, just was reminded me of that. And yeah, I mean, you got saved without anybody communicating. So it just shows that God can work uh, even in our zeal, even when we're even not present, God can still work. God doesn't need us yeah. to transform right. people, but he uses us to transform people. And right. that right. is so, so powerful. I also like to make yeah. a note on something you said that I think would be helpful for our listeners, because I think this is not often addressed when we think about interpreting the Bible and holding things in tension. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've been thinking about as it relates to trauma is how trauma makes us see things in black and white. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for a traumatized mind to sometimes hold things in tension. And I think about the trauma in, in the lives of many black people that they have not yet to process. Mm-hmm. And it creates these sometimes black and white categories. And so when we come to the Bible and sometimes it's a lot of gray, we go on to these extremes. And so one of the ways in which we could properly see the Bible and God correctly is to deal with the, the traumas and the hurts in our own heart. Because I always say when bitterness takes root in our heart, truth gets distorted in our mind. And so one of the things we need to do as believers is as you're listening to this conversation is to search your own heart to see like, where am I still holding bitterness? Where have I not processed trauma? Where am I holding resentment? Where has my heart gone cold? And where has my uh, a heart of flesh become stoned? Like challenge that because that's going to shape how you see God and how you see the Bible and the trustworthiness of the Bible as well. And so I want us to think about this holistically because how what's happening in our heart will impact what we see in the text. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that from this, you get a more holistic picture uh, and how best to trust the Bible. Sherelle, do you have any uh, last words uh, to say on this subject? Yeah, that's such a great point you brought up. Um, I think for, a few years. First of all, I didn't know black people were in the Bible. Um, I came to know this because at my church in Mississippi, we were, they wanted me to do the black history program. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I don't know what to do, but I was like, let me just see if there are black folk in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And like, I was blown away with like how many black people were in the Bible. And so that started me to really engage like the conversation of blackness in the Bible. Mm -hmm. But I was always really afraid to read slave passages Mm -hmm. because I could not stomach if I came to a particular conclusion that would have made chattel slavery. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So for the longest, it, it terrified me. Mm-hmm. And I, I could remember like going through those passages and wanting to read what I needed to read. And so for a lot of us, like we have these sources of trauma that we're afraid that the Bible won't liberate or won't vindicate or won't give us the type of comfort that we need. And so what we may do is find a source that will do that. Maybe we'll just attach that source to the Bible or maybe we'll like really find a text to to do that for us. And my encouragement really is to trust that God would do the liberative work without us having to like fix his word. Mm -hmm. And so one of the examples that I have is um, when I read the Gospels, I remember first coming to faith and a lot of like people were using the gospel messages um, to show that like women could preach. Right. And I came from a church that was like women, they're not preaching. Now, I personally think women can preach, but they were, you know, my context was like, no, women uh, can't preach like they can't do that. And I remember a lot of people wanted that to be true so bad. And so they would read the Gospels and they would read these passages and say, oh, this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about gender. He is uh, going to Mary because he wants to give women, you know, this voice. Right. And I remember when I read the Gospels and it hit me that there is a gender. There was a gender constraint on redemption and who was in the covenant, like your covenantal um kind of connection came through like male headship, Mm -hmm. like you were in a family. And when I recognized that Jesus's interaction with women were this, was this like redemptive inviting women into the covenant on their own basis, it blew my mind. And I remember thinking, this is such a great truth that women can be a part of the, the family of God on their own like basis. No need for like, a male to like invite you into the family. Like you can be a part of God's community on your own. And I remember thinking, man, for so long, I wanted women to be liberated that I was forcing the text to say things that were liberating Mm -hmm. and missing things that were really liberating. Mm -hmm. And so my encouragement is when we have like these traumas or these things that we need the text to say, because to not get it, is either life-threatening for us. It's a real, like, life situation Mm -hmm. to trust that God would do the liberating work without us having to interpret the text in a way that we think we need to interpret the text. Now, do I think that the Gospels um, encourage uh, women in ministry? Of course I do. Um, But I think if that's the thing that we need the text to say most dearly, we're going to miss the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so allow God to liberate us from these like problematic experiences, problematic things concerning race and gender and class and relationships on his own and not forcing the text to say something that we think is going to be liberating. No, that's really good and really helpful and insightful. Uh, Sherelle, can you give our audience some ways to reach you, whether it's social handles or uh that they can connect with you online. Yeah, girl, I'm so bad with social media. Um, I think my, I have a Twitter. I think it's like she duck, something like that. If you, if you type in Sherelle Ducksworth, you should be able to, to see it. Um, if I'm being honest, I don't even know what my Instagram handle <laughs> is. 
I think if you type in my name, like it'll come up. I think I started these things before uh, PhD, and then I just kind of, you know, never dealt with them. But um, my email is at sduxworth at andersonuniversity.edu. So I'm always like available there. I'm on Facebook. You can just type my name in for um, there. Um, and then if all that fails, Lisa and Yana, they know how to, how to <laughs> get in contact with me. So feel free to, to reach out to them to, to get in contact. Um, Sherelle, what books would you recommend on this subject of uh, authority of scripture and the trustworthiness of scripture and justice? Just a few. Yeah, so there is a, oh, I can't remember the name. There's like this, I keep books on my, on my desk. Okay. So there's like this series mm-hmm. of books that look like this. Okay. And they have one that's on the doctrine of scripture. Okay. And I would recommend that. Um, and then two, I would really recommend readers to look at the bibliography in this book. Because again, I want to expose people to black voices mm-hmm. who have talked about that topic. And so if you really want some like very practical and sound ways of thinking through the Bible's trustworthiness, I think the resources in that bibliography and in this Courageous Conversations book is good. And then also this book has a doctrine of scripture version that I think is really good also. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Sherelle. This has been very helpful and insightful. Make sure you get this book, uh, The Curriculum Courageous Convos Conversations, um, The Tools You Know, uh, The Tools You Need for the Conversations and Culture. I forgot the subtitle. Uh, <laughs> but I think it'll really help you and to go through it through, with your church because this is this mm-hmm. is developed for small groups and churches. Go through it because these are the conversations that people are having in in culture and your church needs to be equipped to go through these and answer these questions. And Sherelle and Yana did an excellent job giving you a framework. Um, and they are the epitome of black girl magic, uh, mm-hmm. killing it. They are well-educated and well-equipped to help you answer these questions. And I love it that it's coming from a black woman's lens because mm-hmm. I feel like the more on the margins you are, the, the better equipped sometimes to talk about things in a more layered way. Mm. that people with more privilege can miss. And so black mm. women, you know, would be considered at the at the low totem pole mm. of society. Yeah. And we have to interact with society in very unique ways that gives, I think, a level of credibility and a, a, a level of depth to our writings and experience on these mm. difficult matters in culture. And so do yourself a favor and do your church a favor and get Courageous Conversations curriculum and have your church go through it. I'm going to show it again. Now, in addition to that, many of you don't know that we have the, uns- many of you know we have the unspoken uh, documentary, but what you don't know is there's a curriculum, a small group curriculum, unspoken. It is amazing. I'm just showing y'all the pages. I am almost uh, sometimes sad that we didn't get color for the Courageous Conversations curriculum uh, like we did in the Unspoken, but it really goes in depth with the documentary and helps if your church has already watched the documentary, y'all need to go through this curriculum. Um, so it gives you more insight to what was said. If it was, it's a lot to take in in two hours. And so it like gives you a framework and it gives you timestamps. So if there's a part in the documentary, we have correlating parts in the um 
in the curriculum that really help your church. And so what you want to do is go to unspokenmovie.com and there's a link on there uh, for you to get the curriculum. And I think it will bless your church, especially if you've already been through the curriculum. Black History Month is coming up. Uh, you want to do something in tandem with that. I think this will be a great resource for that. So make sure you get unspoken curriculum Courageous Conversations curriculum and we have Through Eyes of Color. I also, Through Eyes of Color curriculum, we have a Right Now Media uh, series that goes along with that. And so you can see uh, me doing a series on Right Now Media about the Through Eyes of Color curriculum. So that's my commercials, but we have done a lot this year. God has graced us. You probably heard the highlight at the beginning of this episode. Uh, we cannot do what we do without faithful people that give. And I just want you to know that for us to continue to expand and for us to do what we want to do in 2023 and for us to do what we, the vision that God has put in me, we need financial support. And so um, consider being a monthly giver or a one-time giver at Jew3project.org backslash donate. Every gift helps equip and we will continue to do our HBCU tours. Now that the COVID is a little bit, I won't say it's completely lifted, but it's a, a little bit easier to navigate. We'll continue to produce more documentaries. We'll continue to uh, do all the great work, curriculum courses and the engagements that we do in the media series, but those things take resources and we need your help to do that. So consider giving at Jew3project.org backslash donate. Thank you again for listening. Uh, we have so many resources online that you can get and um, on our YouTube channel, on all our social media and on our website. We have a new website coming up that I'm excited about. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, remember here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, grace and peace and God bless. What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at Jew3project.org. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses 
based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to ju3project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.